0: Yeah! Yeah.
1: Welcome to that showbiz, baby! What are we talking about today, Kate? Mental
0: illnesses. Ew! (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh no! Oh no! Welcome to our mental health episode! Let's get our trigger warnings out of the way. Today, in this episode, we will be discussing depression, anxiety, borderline personality disorder, suicidal ideation, and other triggering mental health things. If that will harm you or sounds like a bad time, go ahead and skip this episode and we'll see uh, ya on the other ones. Otherwise, welcome to the Terror Dome and uh (laughs) buckle up up. we would also like to emphasize that this episode is not a stand-in for a therapist or proper medication or talking to your doctor about things you may be experiencing so this is just a what we've been through and what we've learned kind of thing to share with everyone so kate and i both have clinical depression correct Yes. So I have BPD as well, borderline personality disorder. But with BPD and depression, it's a sort of like a chicken and the egg situation. Like one sort of spawned the other. We're not really sure which one was here first. (laughs) But the main things we both have experience with and the main things we're going to talk about today are depression and dissociation. But let's talk about depression first. (laughs) So before we dive into our particular experiences, I thought it would be interesting to give you a brief history of depression throughout the years and the reason i'm doing this (laughs) is because i find sometimes within certain circles depression can be seen as navel gazing or self-indulgent or Mm. like well we didn't have depression in my day it's a 21st century problem and i just want to be like well actually no it is not (laughs) (laughs) so the earliest written accounts of depression appeared in the second Millennium BCE. That's before Christ, okay, in Mesopotamia. And they called it melancholia, which like sounds more elegant to me in a way. I don't know. It sounds like more It sounds floaty. It sounds <laughs> It sounds way funner to have a <laughs> depression. I want that. <laughs> so back then it would have been seen as a spiritual malady rather than a physical one, and would have been treated as such. So think priests rather than physicians. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of treated that way today in some circles. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, so many doctors in those times believed demons were the root cause of depression, a belief which persists even today, as we've said. And there was a very common belief among the Romans that that depression was caused by the anger of the gods. And I, for one, am not going to repudiate that theory. (laughs) But there were a good number of doctors who believed that depression was a biological And psychological illness. So uh, back in those days, it was treated by gymnastics, massage, diet, music, baths, and poppy extract (laughs) and donkey's milk. (laughs) And then there were some harsher treatments like starvation, shackles, and beatings. I'm guessing Argus Filch was in charge. (laughs) During the Middle Ages, religion and especially Christianity oftentimes equated it with witchcraft. (laughs) I'm not depressed she's like just a witch depression so I was like witchcraft to me so the treatment was more along the lines of exorcisms drownings being burned alive or locked up in a lunatic asylum which is like kind of funny to me in a way well not it's not funny <laughs> but so it's hilarious. like imagine someone like drowning someone and then be like well cured her depression yeah <laughs> it's just you like, feel better now <laughs> <laughs> like, so, some doctors continued to seek physical causes for depression, but they were in the minority. In 1621, Robert Burton published Anatomy of Melancholy. And in this treatise, he outlined the social and psychological causes of depression poverty, fear, loneliness, etc. And made recommendations like diet, exercise, travel. I like those ones. Bloodletting, <laughs> I'm not really into. Herbs, yes. Music therapy, yes. We like those. During the 18th and 19th centuries, depression came to be viewed as a weakness in temperament that was genetically inherited and couldn't be changed. And so people with that condition just had to be shunned or locked up. (laughs) Just deal. Just get... You're making everybody uncomfortable. Yeah, you need to leave the city. You're <laughs> making everyone uncomfortable. It was also seen as a moral deficit by some doctors during this time. Basically, the line of thought there was that depression is evil and you're choosing to be depressed, so you're choosing something evil. That kind of line of thought does continue today in some circles. Oh, definitely. Which is it's like- the whole like, do not believe enough. Yeah, believe harder. So some doctors sought to identify that physical causes of this condition, but they were, again, in the minority. Shout out to those doctors. Thoughts <laughs> and prayers. So treatments in those days included diet changes, enemas, which like, okay. Horseback riding. Okay. And vomiting. Okay. That sounds off. <laughs> Enemas and vomiting, I am go- I'm- i can't sign off on, but diet changes and horseback riding sound okay. Benjamin Franklin is also reported to have developed an early form of electroshock therapy at that time. In 1895, distinctions are made between depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. So I guess they were classifying all of those as just depression. <laughs> In 1917... Sigmund Freud theorizes that melancholia is a response to loss, either real or symbolic, and that psychoanalysts could help a person resolve these unconscious conflicts. So I think probably what he's talking about there is situational depression. Behaviorists rejected the idea that depression was caused by unconscious forces and instead suggested it was a learned behavior. During the 1930s to 1950s, treatments for severe depression weren't enough to help people. And so in desperation, people kind of started turning to other things like lobotomies. <laughs> the lobotomies are surgeries that destroy the brain's prefrontal lobe. And these surgeries did have a calming effect. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. But they also cause personality changes, loss of decision making ability, poor judgment, and sometimes even death. So roughly 50,000 lobotomies were performed in the U.S. and Europe in the two decades after the the procedure was invented. In Canada, it was less popular, but it was... It had, like, this weird rise and fall in Ontario for some reason. Like, they were into it in Ontario. (laughs) How very Um, Ontario. uh, I know, right? (laughs) But they were outlawed in Canada in 1978. So along with this came electroconvulsive therapy also known as electroshock therapy, also known as ECT, which is an electrical shock applied to the scalp in order to induce a seizure. Um, ECT use has declined with the advent of modern antidepressants. Thank you, modern antidepressants. (laughs) But there has been a resurgence of ECT lately with new modern techniques and technologies, which is like terrifying to me. I'm like, why are we doing Why are we going back? Why are we going backwards? (laughs) So during the 1960s and 70s, cognitive theories of depression began to emerge. Cognitive theorist Aaron Beck proposes that depressed people tend to automatically interpret events in negative ways and view themselves as helpless and inadequate, which, true. Psychologist Martin Seligman comes out with a theory of learned helplessness. So this means that... Depressed people often give up trying to change their situation because they feel that nothing they do will make a difference. Because nothing really matters. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone can see. Those two theories led to the emergence of CBT, also known as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is good. We love CBT. Yay. Also in the 1970s, we finally got to biological explanations and the medical model of mental disorders emerged. Huzzah! So this model suggested that all mental disorders were primarily caused by physiological factors such as genetics, brain chemistry, hormones, brain anatomy and viewed mental health conditions in the same way as physical illnesses, meaning that such conditions can and should be treated with medication and therapy. Since the 1970s, it's been understood more and more as a physiological ailment that causes changes in behavior. It's not just quote-unquote feeling sad. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the symptoms of depression as understood today are avoiding friends or beloved activities, feelings of hopelessness, trouble sleeping or excessive sleeping, Guilty as charged. (laughs) Low energy or loss of motivation, loss of appetite, or, on the other side, binge eating. Difficulty with concentration and suicidal thoughts or tendencies. Currently, depression affects 121 million people worldwide and is responsible for 850,000 deaths every year. She's a killer. Okay. Okay. So I just wanted to share my favorite literary quotes about depression and suicide ideation. So these quotes have helped me throughout the years in that when I read them, it helped me better understand what I was going through or it made me feel like someone else understood what I was going through. So these are all from the book, The Hours by Michael Cunningham, one of my favorites. She is again possessed. It seems to be getting worse by a dreamlike feeling as if she is standing in the wings about to go on stage and perform in a play for which she is not appropriately dressed and for which she has not adequately rehearsed what she wonders is wrong with her she never imagined it like this when she thought of someone a woman like herself losing her mind she'd imagine shrieks and wails hallucinations but at that moment, it had seemed clear that there was another way, far quieter, a way that was numb and hopeless, flat, so much so that an emotion as strong as sorrow would have been a relief. There is something worse than death with its promise of release and slumber. There is dust rising, endless days, and a hallway that sits and sits. She is above all else tired. She wants more than anything to return to her bed and her book. It is possible to die. Laura thinks suddenly of how she, how anyone, You make a choice like that. It is a reckless, retiginous thought slightly disembodied. It announces itself inside her head, faintly but distinctly, like a voice crackling from a radio station. She could decide to die. It could, she thinks, be deeply comforting. It might feel so free to simply go away, to say to them all, I couldn't manage. You had no idea. I didn't want to try anymore. There might, she thinks, be a dreadful beauty in it, like an ice field or a desert in early morning. She could go, as it were, into other landscapes. She could leave them all behind, her child, her husband, and kitty, her parents, everybody in this battered world. It will never be whole again. It will never be quite clean. Saying to one another and to anyone who asks, we thought she was all right. We thought her sorrows were ordinary ones. We had no idea. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Kate is diagnosed with clinical depression and I have BPD, which depression is kind of like a fun side effect of. So we both struggle with depression and dissociation. We're going to discuss both, but first let's talk about depression. So how old were you, Kate, when you became aware that you had something? (laughs) So my first
0: memory, I was six. And I remember this very well. I was in my backyard. Uh, Life was happening around me. I don't know if I had friends over, if just my siblings had friends over. There was like happiness and joy and kids playing. And I can remember exactly where I was standing in the yard and just looking at everything being like, this should make me happy. Like I should be happy. I should feel joy in this. But I just, it felt like this over looming, I always say, like, a cloud or a fog of just heaviness Mm -hmm. that, like, was in the way of being able to experience joy. And, like, obviously I was six. I didn't think too much of it. It was just it existed. And then I'd say just since then it got worse or more apparent. And then obviously once I understood it, then I was like, ah. There there she
1: is. There she be. For me, it was probably in my childhood. I was always kind of like a little bit of an Eeyore. (laughs) But I don't have any super clear memories of it. But it really became apparent in high school. And uh, so I've been retyping my old journals from that period, which is like how embarrassing for me that I existed and (laughs) wrote things down during that time. (laughs) I, I was also like weirdly religiously fundamentalist back then (laughs) and i'm just like these are the stark ravings of a (laughs) madman but a lot of it is like oh i am clearly experiencing depression like on the richter scale But it's just that nobody was calling it that. I did used to also have a lot of social anxiety, but that kind of lessened over the years. I think I definitely struggled with depression more. I also was dealing with the after effects of childhood sexual trauma, which really contributed to the cyclical nature of my depression. It used to be like every March and every October, like clockwork, <laughs> which made it super hard to like do well in school or hold down a job or things like that. Kate, what symptoms did you have?
0: Did and do. (laughs) I mean, the biggest is like loss of interest in things that usually bring me joy. So for me, music, both listening and playing, um, dance, nature, just being curious about the world and wanting to learn things. All of a sudden, like that will all be gone. Nothing brings me joy anymore. And I just have no interest in even, like, listening to music. And that's, like, a big sign that, yeah. hey, she ain't good. Well, there's something not right here. Yeah. Loss of sleep for sure. But I do have, it's, like, binge sleeping. There will be times where I could just sleep for, like, 12 or 14 hours. But oh, yeah. But then there'll be weeks of hardly any sleep. Oh, shit. But then, of course, with that, because it's like a snowball. Like, if you're not getting sleep, then you're not going to have energy.
1: And then if you don't have energy, then you don't feel good. And if you don't feel good, then... it makes the depression worse.
0: It's just, like, this constant thing. So with it, like, I do hate when people are like, oh, depression is just feeling sad. Because that's not it. No. But there is that within it. So it's this almost hopelessness and sadness and loneliness. And, like, you really do feel like your own island for a while. Yeah. (laughs) For that time. I'm a planet. (laughs) But also, like, the aspect of living in chaos, like my room <laughs> yeah oh i stopped the dishes are not getting done not <laughs> like, today not ever this was even a recent example like honestly this was a month ago um i was super super stressed Yada, yada, yada. things happen <laughs> but <laughs> my one thing led to another <laughs> yeah like things kept piling up on my bed to the point where i had like maybe three feet of space yeah and I couldn't clean it up, and so I slept in that three, week <laughs> three feet of space. And I'm six feet tall. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> no, we laugh because we know. Because otherwise, we would cry. Yeah. <laughs> and but it's just like I have no ability to be able to take care of my space, to better myself. And same thing with that self care is just non-existent. Yeah. And then because of all of that. So There's fair, just guilt.
1: I don't know her. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Just so and then you're like, what's
1: wrong guilt. with me that I can't
0: just do the dishes? Yeah. And it's, like, oh. and it's like when people make any sort of comment, even if they're coming from a very well-meaning place, being like, hey, you want to come on a walk with us? I take that as, oh, you think I'm being fucking lazy and, like, you think I'm not doing anything and you want me to get outside. <laughs> oh, just really? Like, to oh, me, yeah. To me, as asking
1: that. for a walk is, like there's like a divide and it's like people waving to me from the other side being like, oh, hey, we see that you're over there. Do you want to come over here? And I'm like, oh, "Oh, I can't, I can't make it over there. I Um, wish my brain took it that way. It does not.
0: (laughs) Oh, shit. But that's because I just like, I have so much guilt in my brain that like I put on myself. Yeah. So then I filter what other people are saying to me through that. Oh,
1: shit. But yeah, that's some symptoms. I'm sorry if I've ever asked you to go on a walk. Yeah, how dare you? I would never ask you to go on a walk anyway because I don't like walking. Exactly. But I think I would be like, I'd be like, I'm coming over. Yeah, (laughs) bitch. So for me, Uh, so I often would write in my journals about the world going colorless. Like, it just seemed like they're... colored, yeah. Yeah, everything seemed like numb and flat and pointless. And I stopped being able to access... Other emotions beyond depression. And so when you're coming out of a depressive episode, and then you start to notice other emotions. Like, for example, let's say someone cuts you off in traffic and you feel anger. It's like, oh, I haven't felt that <laughs> in a oh, that's a new thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I haven't felt that one in a few weeks. And a heaviness, like you're covered by like an invisible blanket, but mm. like a, a not like a not nice blanket. <laughs> an unfriendly blanket unable to do simple tasks like doing the dishes going to the grocery store cooking for myself anything like that showering is yeah. off the table like fucking forget about it yeah not doing that I would feel really lonely and I would want to be with friends and then the second I was with friends I would want to be alone yeah would <laughs> be like I was it was like I was having like an allergic reaction to being with my <laughs> friends I'm like I need to go I am allergic to you now yeah uh, insomnia, but I also slept excessively like during the day and stuff. Yeah, uh, Very low energy, can't concentrate. Although I've always had really low energy. And now that I have chronic fatigue, I also have low energy. <laughs> so it's like, is this depression low energy or is this chronic fatigue low yeah. energy? <laughs> so suicidal ideation, because of my particular mental health diagnosis, I struggle with suicidal ideation like pretty easily but I think that's just the brain's way of being like, what's the quickest way to get you yeah. out of pain? Yeah. If you're we're
0: dead. Like, <laughs> we can't handle this. Yeah. It's easier if we're done.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, it's, it's for really ridiculous things. Like, I run out of toothpaste and I'm like, well, I might as well kill myself. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Very easily irritated. I'm kind of easily irritated in general. But when I'm <laughs> depressed, it's like, don't breathe in at the same age as me. So during some depressive episodes, I would be afraid of other people or like afraid of open spaces and like couldn't go to the grocery store by myself or things like that. I don't know what that was about. People would ask me questions that I would normally know the answers to, but I literally would just be unable to make sentences. And then so I just stare at them, (laughs) Which which makes people uncomfortable, I guess. They don't like that. I guess they don't like that. Sometimes. So I either couldn't listen to music at all because the emotions the music would stir up would be too painful or I would only be able to listen to like pop music Mm. so when I'm depressed images of myself crying just pop into my head and then just stay there all day so I could be having a conversation with someone (laughs) and I just be like imagining myself crying (laughs) why am I doing that I hate it here. And again, no interest in anything, even things that I normally love doing. Um, When I stop masturbating, that's a huge sign. (laughs) So how did your family and church community react to you having it, or did you hide it?
0: Hit it. (laughs) (laughs) 1,020%. Yeah, I've always, I guess, tried to put on a good face for other people. And not bother people, because I've always felt like I'm a bother if I let them in on that. And then there's been the few times that I have let certain people in. I think it's just, it's not like they treated me badly, but their lack of understanding made it seem like I was being a bother.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So then I
0: was just like, I'm not doing this like, I don't want to let anybody in. I'm just going to hide it. I will not be taking follow-up questions yeah. at this time. Which actually made it worse as I got older, though, because yeah. then nobody believed me. Or they just thought that, oh, like, you just are a little bit sad sometimes. Like, we all struggle with that. And you're just like, <laughs> oh. Girl, like, Just no. because I'm like, I smile a lot. I try to make other people laugh. So I'm like, yeah. that should be your sign that I ain't doing okay.
1: <laughs> so every time you make me laugh. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> no. I didn't want people to think that I was being lazy. So then I would always show up for them no matter how I was feeling. And so it was yeah. very much I
1: suffered in silence on my own. Did you get the, uh, but you don't look depressed. Oh, yeah. I've had that before, too. <laughs> I'm like, well, did you want me to look? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. So for me, I was very good at fooling people. But over the years, it just became so apparent that people knew even without me like making an announcement. So some people within our church back home were awesome about it. Other people tended to treat me like I was like a fragile mm. thing made of glass. And I was like, okay, well, I don't love that. <laughs> and then some people just avoided interacting with me, which I didn't care because like you're going to avoid interacting with me because you know i'm depressed and i probably don't want to be friends with you anyway i think people wanted to support me but i think that they didn't really know how my family didn't really believe that depression was like a thing at first or maybe that i had it um they also didn't really believe that i needed medication for my mental health issues and they kind of had like this uh they kind of had their a real chip on their shoulder about big pharma or whatever, mm. so they were like, "You shouldn't be taking all those drugs." And I'm like, "Do you even know what these drugs do?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but once I landed in the psych ward once or twice, my family was like, "Oh, okay, like mm-hmm. we get, it. <laughs> yeah." But in the first few decades, they would kind of blame lots of stuff on the medication that I took without actually understanding what medication I was on or what it did. They were worried about me, I know. So my mom told. Steph, my other best friend, she said that I became like an empty house, like the lights are on, but nobody's home. And she thought that I was just like gone and that I wasn't Mm. coming back. I think my brothers just thought I was like acting out for the attention. And that if I just worked harder, I would get over it. So there was a lot of comments made by everyone. How if I just, you know, go to work, do more work, just pull up your socks and get on with it kind of thing. And I was like, well, I like literally can. not that (laughs) so they've really changed their opinions on it over the years and i'd say they have like a much healthier comprehensive understanding of it now but there were lots of in the beginning there's lots of like frustrating absolutely crazy making conversations (laughs) so i just had to set boundaries around around what i was willing to discuss nowadays i could probably even get them to agree that there were there were some undiagnosed mental health issues within their extended families But before they were just like, I don't trust these drugs. And now my mom is like, but make sure you're taking your drugs. (laughs) (laughs) That was just because of how life threatening it became for me. Um, I don't really remember how people at church reacted to it. But I remember people like wanted to support me. But sometimes and sometimes they knew how to and sometimes they didn't. So people were awkward about it, but they wanted me to be okay. It's just sometimes I felt like people want me to be okay so that they can go back to feeling comfortable. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. I also think some people were probably of the opinion that I would become better if I prayed more, if I trusted Jesus yeah. more, if I just like tried harder. So it was just easier to hide it as much as possible. And then it was when it was no longer possible to hide it, I just kind of let it all hang out. And so that was isolating as well. Cause people like don't want to be around you if you're doing that. And I knew I was different from everybody else. And so that wasn't great. It's like everyone else wanted me to keep it inside because that's what they were doing, (laughs) but I just became unable to, and it made people uncomfortable, but some people were really like loving and supportive. So that was good. Sometimes people would come over just to be with me. And I've always been really grateful for that. So what are some coping mechanisms you've learned over the years for depression?
0: Hmm. I'd say, like, now I'm in a much better space where I can celebrate smaller things. Yeah. So, like, before, if all I could do was get out of bed and, like, put clothes on for the day. Yeah. I would beat myself up about that, where now it's a, It's a you go. (laughs) You did that thing. You get an award. Yeah. I also don't fake it. I refuse to let myself fall back into that. Yeah. Like, obviously, there are some times where I'm choosing to be a bit more pleasant. But I don't. You're making a strategic choice. Exactly, I don't. Yeah, I don't put on the face and, like, fake it till you make it type thing anymore because that does not help anything.
1: No. It makes it worse if you can't talk about it. Yeah.
0: I am okay to sit in it now. I am aware of it. I try to be more present for myself within it. Yeah. I've also been working on the aspect of, like, guilt doesn't help. (laughs) So even though the thoughts go through my brain, I try to kind of smash them out and not let them grow. Um, Hulk smash. Exactly. (laughs) One thing, this is probably going to sound weird, but I had to change food from being a comfort and joyful thing to being a task. Yeah. Where it is just a task I check off in the day so that my body is being taken of yeah because yep. if i make it be a comfort and joy i will binge the fuck out of it <laughs> i will not eat until like 7 p.m and then i will eat like two thousand calories or something yum and then i feel like shit and that just gets the ball rolling again where if i make it a task then i am taking care of my body and not letting myself fall into that yeah and then i also i let Don't push myself. I let myself rest if I need to rest.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because
1: having depression is exhausting. Yeah. It's like so, I'm tired just thinking about it. I want to take a nap just thinking about (laughs) it. I'll take a nap after this. So, for myself, I should caveat this with, and this is kind of weird, and I still don't know how or why this happened, but I haven't really had a depressive sort of episode since 2021. Nice. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Like I literally do not I have theories. So I also kind of feel nervous like it's like yeah, out like you are waiting. Yeah. yeah. It's out there waiting for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when I did get these like very repetitive, like very predictable sort of depressive episodes, Some of them were more serious than others, but I would get them pretty regularly. And so I kind of, at one point I like wrote out like a depression protocol. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in that protocol, um, the only thing I'm allowed to watch is like very silly comedies. Mm, That's good. Uh, So like The Office, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec, (laughs) New Girl, stuff like that.
0: Oh, actually, you know what? That is true. I try to make
1: myself listen to better music. Yeah. 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 I'm not allowed to listen to sad music. (laughs) I'm only allowed to listen to like upbeat pop music. So half of Taylor Swift's discography (laughs) I can listen to. And then the other half I'm not allowed to listen to. (laughs) Shout out to my girl Taylor. Conan O'Brien's podcast That podcast has cured my depression more than once. (laughs) During the pandemic, I listened to an episode with Zach Galifianakis where he described his body type as a fifth grader who'd swallowed a penguin. (laughs) I laughed so hard. I was openly weeping. (laughs) What I do is I have a small circle of mental health support pals. These are like maybe three or four friends, people who already know how your particular iteration of mental health Manifests and who you don't have to explain yourself to. So I usually get a group check going. And then so I'll do things like, whoever is free, can you come over and just pursue separate tasks in the same room as mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. That helps a lot. I also ask them <laughs> to make sure I'm eating regularly. I cannot make myself eat when I'm depressed. And if I do eat, it's something like, I'll go to the store and I'll buy something like super-duper dairy, whipped cream on, sugar, puff, (laughs) coconut, mousse, strawberry, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually text one of my support pals and I'm like, I need you to supervise me eating a vegetable. I need you to bring a vegetable (laughs) over to my house and watch me eat it. (laughs) If I feel like I'm going to hurt myself, I call someone to go over to their house or call someone to come over to my house And if I can't do that, I call 911. On the topic of suicidal urges, so my best coping strategy for this one is called just don't do it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just be like, I'm busy tonight. Can't do it tonight. I'll do it tomorrow. I can't cancel. (laughs) But what will I wear? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I'll just do it tomorrow. And then... Every tomorrow, I just make another excuse for why I can't do it today. I'll just be like, I'm just not in the mood for suicide today. I'll just be like, I have a really full schedule of watching The Office tonight. So I just can't. I just don't have time for it tonight. I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) And then eventually, you put it off for so long that you stop having the suicidal thoughts. And then you're like, huh, I outwitted it. (laughs) Go to therapy, even if you don't want to. And if you can't make yourself go, tell one of your support pals to make you go. And remember, I try to remember that it's not always going to feel this way. Like, I've beat 100% of every Mm -hmm. depressive episode I've ever been in. And then I just try to remember that it's okay if I need to sleep a lot. And then I try to drink lots of water. I usually fail at this. I even fail at this when I'm not depressed. I don't know what to tell you. So, the next thing we're gonna talk about is dissociation. But before we do that, we're gonna do a brief overview of BPD. <laughs> so, I've never really talked about this. BPD is fairly stigmatized. I don't usually tell people until I'm sure that there's, there's someone that is gonna like stick around and it's not gonna like scare them. So, it's not like one of the fun, cute mental illnesses, you know? <laughs> it's like one of the like scary ones. So, I don't disclose often. But now I'm disclosing to everyone on a podcast because I'm a lunatic. <laughs> anyway, like every Bell Let's Talk Mental Health Day, I'm like, oh, you can just miss me with that. BPD is um, the most emotionally painful of all the mental disorders you can have. And it has the highest rate of suicide. <laughs> I'm an endangered species. <laughs> it's been depicted in pop culture, which is why I think there's that stigma. Because people think. just think of the movie like Girl Interrupted which I love that movie, by the way. But I'm like, not everyone with BPD is my Nona Ryder's character, <laughs> okay? Yeah. I'm nothing like her, so it's often like an uncomfortable comparison. But so BPD, how it works, it's a mental illness that severely impacts a person's ability to regulate their emotions. We don't have the thing that allows you to go, okay, that made me angry, but I'm going to put that aside and go about my day. Most people have a mechanism that allows them to like back burner emotional information. But people with BPD are not born with that mechanism. Like we don't come with a back burner. We can't emotionally regulate on our own. We have to learn how to do that. And we're also highly sensitive to emotions. It's like we're emotionally skinless or burn victims. Like everything, like even good news is like painful. <laughs> mm. And we also experience emotions at warp speed. So something that makes me furious might vaguely irritate someone else so because we're in such emotional turmoil constantly we often resort to coping strategies that seem to work in the moment but are actually pretty bad long term <laughs> impulse control is like zero it's in the negative negative. <laughs> and anyone who knows me will tell you that i do not do well with impulse control <laughs> so people with bpd their lives often seem very chaotic to other people. Yeah, like I am an instrument of chaos. I've just accepted it at this point. But people with BPD are often confused about who they are and where they're going in life. The other thing is that their personal relationships are the thing that the, that's the most important to them, but it's often the thing that gives them the most anxiety and instability because they're terrified of being abandoned mm-hmm. because they are often abandoned. <laughs> so some hallmarks of BPD are... Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, a pattern of intense and unstable interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization or devaluation. Like, either this person is like everything to me or they're dead to me. And you can switch between them pretty quickly. Identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image, or a sense of self. Um, impulsivity in at least two areas that could be potentially self damaging, for example, spending money, sex, substance abuse, etc. Oh, she's a fun girl. Recurrent suicidal and self mutilating behavior, self sabotage, highly emotionally reactive, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate, intense anger, or difficulty controlling anger. Oh, my God. I'm telling everyone too much about myself. <laughs> Severe paranoia and dissociative symptoms. So keep in mind that everything I just said and everything I'm going to say is about people with BPD who either have not had treatment or are in the middle of treatment, which is a whole different ball game. Yes. <laughs> than someone with BPD who has been treated and is considered, quote unquote, in remission. That's what they call it. I'm in remission. So a lot of people with BPD often act in manipulative ways to get people to stick with them, but I've never really been that kind of a BPD person. My BPD manifests in severe dissociation. People often think I don't care or I'm bored or I don't give a shit, but it's often because I'm expending so much effort in controlling my emotions that my face appears blank or it seems like I'm willfully not listening. And the other thing that I do is rage. (laughs) So the the rage rage against the machine. The rage thing has been a real problem in my life. I've lost and or damaged more than a few relationships because of it. When I get angry enough, I also get really mean. (laughs) And I'm also smart enough to know exactly what words will hurt someone. And I go Mm. for the jugular every (laughs) single time. And it's so hard to stop myself and be like, just don't go for the jugular this time. It feels good in the moment. And then 10 minutes later... When I'm surveying the wake of my destruction, (laughs) I feel intense shame and guilt and it scares and unsettles people and then they don't want to be around me anymore, which perpetuates a cycle of abandonment that I often feel caught in. People with BPD also have problems with attachment. They show conflicting responses to the person they should be attached to and they avoid contact at the same time that they're seeking contact, kind of like a, I hate you, don't leave me kind of thing. So people with BPD also grew up in invalidating environments because their feelings are so extreme, adult figures in their life will either teach them that their feelings are not correct or that their feelings should be avoided. So if you're a person with BPD and you're constantly like factoring that into the equation, okay, sometimes my feelings aren't exactly in tune with reality. So you're constantly second guessing yourself and editing yourself and sensing yourself and being so careful and downing yourself. It's just like constant and relenting and exhausted and exhausting. And then if, if someone on top of that gaslights you or invalidates you, it's like I just lose my shit instantly. <laughs> the rage is so all consuming that I can no longer think straight. I disconnect from myself completely and then I realize like, oh, I'm screaming words out loud at someone (laughs) Um, and I can't make myself stop. So I have termed these BPD meltdowns and these are really scary because in the middle of them, you don't know what you're going to say or what you're going to do, but you know it's going to be bad. Mm. (laughs) And you're essentially no longer in the driver's seat. It's just like you're watching the whole thing and you want it to stop, but you can't make it stop. So if I'm angry about something, I need someone to validate my feelings before I can even think about moving on or going into problem-solving mode. Most people, when they get angry with someone, they can access how they felt about that person before they were angry with them. They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is my mom. I love my mom. But I (laughs) – And they can like imagine wanting to preserve their relationship. And so they're able to say things with a view of like, okay, but in the long run, I really care about this person, even though I'm mad right now. So I have like really struggled with learning how to do that when I get really angry with someone I can't remember ever feeling nicely towards them. I just want to destroy them. So typically I have not tempered my words or behavior because why would I? (laughs) Even if it's my own mother, I'm like, our relationship is over and I'm going to let you have it. The gloves are off. So I've had to learn how to leave situations and cool down without saying anything at all. So I'm still learning how to do that. And I think this is like because the amount of emotional pain and distress in the, I feel in the middle of conflicts is so intense. I feel like it's unfair that I should have to like shoulder that all myself. So I just wanna make like the other person feel like just like a little bit of mm. what I'm feeling so that they don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, we're working on that. So there's this, this book called Loud in the House of Myself and the author Stacy Pershaw describes BPD like this. You give your feelings melodramatic names, grandiose status, because melodramatic and grandiose are how you're feeling. You're the most depressed person ever, or on the rare good days, the happiest, no, not happy, ecstatic. There is no gray, only the blackest black and shimmering white. The white for which you live is like being illuminated by a god in whom you have long since stopped believing. The black is what you more often get. If you are this child, or this hypersensitive, emotionally skinless adult who may as well be a child, there will be therapists, long lines of them, each offering drugs, and as much counseling as they can offer before their internship expires. Borderline means you've had five addresses and eight jobs in three years, all your friends are avoiding your phone calls, you're questioning your sexuality, and the credit card companies are after you. It spent a decade forming, gaining power, it made me fly into rages and cry hysterically at school, It ran through the threads of my nervous system. I was contaminated by it. Girls were not supposed to get as angry as I did. The blinding red rages became more frequent as the BPD progressed. My responses to injustice becoming so out of control that the bottom dropped out from under me like the world was like Ravitron and I was plastered to the wall. Eventually, I realized the most terrifying truth of all. I was no longer fighting with other girls. It had gone way beyond that. Somewhere things had shifted and I was fighting my own war inside my head. I didn't need other people at all anymore. So that's kind of a brief overview. (laughs) If it sounds terrifying, it literally is, but it is very treatable. So I was part of a DBT clinic in 2013. I was there for a year. DBT stands for dialectical behavior therapy. It's their skills that were developed by Marsha Linehan to treat BPD so they teach you how to regulate your own emotions and how to be more, quote unquote, interpersonally effective. <laughs> <laughs> so I did one-on-one DBD, DBT therapy and then group DBT therapy, which I hated, but <laughs> was really helpful. And then I graduated and now I'm considered in remission. Huzzah. <laughs> so now I'm a lot more self-aware and have these skills. And so I'm much more of a functional adult than I ever thought I was going to be actually. But as I've, I've mentioned, dissociation... Uh, one of the hallmarks of BPD and something I particularly have struggled with. So let's get into dissociation. Dissociation is a mental process where a person usually involuntarily disconnects from their body, thoughts, feelings, even memories or sense of identity. It's a break in how your mind handles information. You become detached emotionally and or physically from whatever's happening to you or around you. So this uh, mind-body disconnection happens. And in a lot of ways, it's a fail-safe. Being around people doesn't really bug you as much. You're less bothered by situations you can't control. But you also can't really recognize your own face in the mirror, which is disturbing. So when I'm dissociating, my voice, to me, sounds like a really shitty recording of a recording of myself. And it's just, like, jarring. And everything that happens feels like a memory or like I'm watching a TV show where I hate all the characters and don't understand the plot. So when I'm dissociating really hard, I don't like to talk because the sound of my voice just is so jarring that I don't want to hear it and I don't want to see my face. So I just go to my room and I'm silent by myself. (laughs) So, Kate, you also struggle with dissociation. Yes. What form does your dissociation take?
0: So mine is a lot like depersonalization. So it is, like you said, about thoughts, feelings or body being detached
1: to the outside world. It
0: often looks like I'm just not paying attention or I'm zoned out, Mm -hmm. which has been my entire life. But that's also to do with ADHD. But inside, how it feels is like there's this little version of me. And I am, like, screaming to try to get control of myself again yeah. or to try to focus or try to just, like, grab onto the real world. Mm-hmm. And it feels like I'm almost, like, drowning within myself. Yeah. And so I am present in the sense that my body is here. But and my, it's like my body can go through the daily tasks of what I need to do. Like, I can work an entire day. Yeah. I can hang out with people, and then when I get home and I start to come back to the real world, I'm like, uh, what? What It's like, I don't know. I feel like uh, neurotypical people can still experience this like often when driving, Yeah, when you're just kind of like, you kind of tune out for a little bit and then all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, I don't remember getting here. Yeah. That's how it feels, but just on a much grander scale. Yeah, The worst I've ever experienced was an entire month.
1: Um, oh God. <laughs> that was... Don't speak to me about 2020. That was an entire
0: year. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was after um, a big life event for me and it felt like my world was crumbling and the way that my body kind of tried to protect myself was I dissociated that entire month. Yeah. I still showed up to work every day. I hung out with people, but looking back, I have no memory. I don't know what I did, what I said,
1: yeah. anything.
0: Funny enough, I actually dissociated the beginning of this
1: episode while Megan was talking. (laughs) Really? Because you didn't want to be talking about depression?
0: No, it wasn't (sighs) even that. I actually, I welcome talking about it often, but... You just
1: hated hearing my voice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not at all.
1: (laughs) So much that you disappeared. No,
0: I just vanished. I don't know.
1: What form does my dissociation take? Okay, so the driving thing is like kind of a crapshoot it's a real crapshoot i can't remember how i got to certain places like i remember one time in the house where i lived with uh the hunters and stuff i was in the kitchen and i kind of looked around i was like how did i do- i know i cuz i can see the point where i was so i must have walked from there to here but i can't remember doing it But how do? But how do? So I become very disoriented, almost like someone with dementia or Alzheimer's. Like, I need someone to come with me to the grocery store because I'll get, like, confused or lost. So my entire face just kind of goes blank and I I stop talking entirely or I'll leave the room when someone else is talking to me. (laughs) And then they'll be, like, upset with me and I'm just like, what? I'm completely unable to hold a conversation. Do I can... I can work, but as long as it's, like, like muscle memory work, mm-hmm. like, stuff I know how to do already. I'm also, I don't experience unpleasant emotions, but I also don't experience, like, anything. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's
0: just, like, life's happening.
1: Yeah, life's happening, and I'm just, I'm just there, but I'm, like, gone. So it feels like nothing is, like, tethering me to the earth. And it feels like wrong to be in my body. Like it doesn't feel like it's mine. It feels mm-hmm. like it's like, how did I get in this? Did I what happened? Was there an alien switch? <laughs> like, what's going on? What are your dissociation triggers? Like what triggers you feeling that way? So I don't know. The biggest
0: thing that I've been able to recognize is when I'm in a situation that I'm comfortable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But for the most part, I don't know what exactly my triggers are i have tried to pay attention try to kind of just figure that out and i don't know i know i can also make it happen i can choose to dissociate oh you can like willingly just start i can just turn it on you can. oh it just feels like turning off a chunk of my brain
1: i just i feel like i want that ability but i also don't want that ability (laughs) God knew I could be too powerful. But yeah,
0: the biggest thing I can I know for sure is when I'm in a situation that I'm uncomfortable.
1: Well, that could be anything. Yeah. Oh. Hence why I don't know my triggers. <laughs> well um, Okay, so for me it's mostly connected to relation relational distress or trauma. So for example, the last time I dissociated really hard was when, well, it might be not the last time, but one of the times that really sticks out in my brain was um, Christmas 2020. We were kind of talking about whether we could make Christmas together happen, and then it became, like, very apparent that, like, it could not happen mm. under any circumstances. <laughs> and so so I wasn't going to be with my biological family at Christmas. For the first time in my life ever. <laughs> and I just have had no plans of ever spending Christmas apart for my family. <laughs> I like, I just have never wanted to do that. And so, and I'm like a stage five clinger with my family, especially with my parents. Like <laughs> if I can't be with my parents at Christmas, then I don't want to live. <laughs> <laughs> so that was so traumatic. I still have nightmares about like, mm-hmm. I'm having Christmas, but I can't get to my mom. Yeah. Or my mom can't get to me. Oh, it's awful. So during that time, I feel really bad for Steph. She was like my closest emotionally person, but I was like gone. Mm. I was like not there. I would like leave the room when she was talking to me, which I think really hurt her feelings. Yeah. I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. So like separation or abandonment from loved ones, when loved ones are in pain or dying. Whenever I lose my temper, get angry, and I raise my voice at someone, I'm automatically out. Whenever anyone else raises their voice at me, whenever there's, like, shouting in, like, a serious, angry way in my environment, that's, like, immediate. That's immediate. Yeah. Car accidents? Anything relating to car accidents? I'm gone. Actually,
0: it's funny because those last two, I'm realizing, oh, yeah, I'm the exact same. yeah. Like definitely in the vehicle and definitely yeah. there's yelling or just anger is on the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, anger is on the way. (laughs) Anytime I feel like I might be in danger from another person, particularly a male, I I immediately am completely gone. Hmm. I'm in outer space now. (laughs) I can't receive your messages. So let's talk about ways we've learned to cope with dissociation over the years or to mitigate it at least. Yeah. Kate, what do you, what do you do?
0: I think I'm just, I am practicing just being more present and aware in myself to be able to catch it quicker. Yeah. There's not really a trick to it. It's just, I, I notice it a lot quicker and I even say out loud, you may have noticed, (laughs) I say out loud, I'm like, okay, Kate. (laughs) And it's just a way to be like, no, you're you're actually here. You're not gonna like fade away. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely talking to myself has helped. Yeah. Taking better care of my body does help. So whether exercise or eating better, I'm not great at doing that, but I do notice a difference when I am. Getting in nature can actually bring me back a lot quicker. Yeah. Yeah, just I think the never ending trying to be aware of triggers and the root issue. It's yeah. like the dissociation is the reaction. And so figuring out the root of what's happening. Um, and so just trying to stay curious within myself to always figure that out. Yeah. And always be on the discovery, I guess. Yeah. But there isn't, mm, there
1: wasn't a set thing that's fixed it. It's just oh, learning no. more. <laughs> no, I, I would say none of my coping mechanisms are things that actually fix it yeah. or take care of it it's just like now we're just doing damage control yeah but, so my damage control things that i do <laughs> so i do the um five things you can smell five mm-hmm. things you can see five things you can touch five things you can hear five things you can taste yeah works some of the time for me therapists swear by this it's like a very like every therapist is like yeah what about five things you could see and i'm like oh, I've already heard that one, (laughs) but yes, it does work sometimes. And I do recommend it. Any strong smell, even like, like a gross, strong smell works. It works, but but at what cost? Yeah. It shocks your system. (laughs) Yeah. So peppermint is usually my go-to. Yeah. Yeah. I also have a raspberry grapefruit candle that I'm partial to. (laughs) So have you ever seen Inception? Yes. Okay. So you know how in Inception they each have a totem that they carry oh, yeah, with yeah, them yeah. into their dreams. And then so if they, the way that they know that they're in a dream is that they like yeah. do something with their totem. So kind of the same thing. You get an object and it can be anything. Like a rock that has like a smooth surface. This cloud slime that we've been playing with <laughs> can be true. a totem. Anything like that. And so then when you find yourself dissociating, you just feel, you just, yeah. you just feel it. And then you're like, oh, I'm a person. This is my object <laughs> I that exist. I carry. Yeah. I'm on earth. I'm in my body. Here we go. Yeah. If it's an option to leave or to be away from whatever is triggering me, yeah. I find <laughs> once I'm alone or with someone I can trust, uh, it's a lot easier to put myself back together and get myself back into my quote unquote window of tolerance. I listen to music mindfully, engaging all of my senses. If you can move your body in any kind of way while you're listening to music, that's really good. Because that puts you back in your body, and, but in like a safe and enjoyable way. Yeah. Not in like in a, I'm scared to be in my body way. <laughs> yeah. So anything like yoga, delicious food, any anything that puts you back in your body in like a agreeable, not scary way is kind of the trick there well that was a conversation (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode please like subscribe rate and review our podcast if you have questions or want to get in touch with us you can email us at that's showbizbabypodcast at gmail.com or contact, contact us through instagram at showbizpod And remember, if you've ever canceled social plans to stay at home and deeply inhale peppermint for five hours, that's showbiz baby. That's showbiz baby.